So I thought I was the queen of Airbnb. Check the profile. I visited all the places. However, how can I truly be a queen if I have never been a host? Didn't even think about it, y'all. It's time to think about it because my place is cute. Why not share? I know. I got you thinking about it now. All right. Well, don't think about it. Be about it. Find out how you can be a host at airbnb.com slash host. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple. 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Hi, it's Sugar Steve from Questlove Supreme. If debit is your go-to card, Discover thinks it's time you get rewarded too. So, check out Discover Cashback Debit a game-changing checking account with cash back on everyday debit card purchases. That's right, cash back isn't just for credit cards anymore. Whether it's a movie date, flea market find, or midday latte, you can start earning cash back. And did I mention there are no fees, period? Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashbackdebit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. Course Love Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. This classic episode was produced by the team at Pandora. Ladies and gentlemen, what is up? Um, this is Questlove Supreme Classic. I gotta say, this is probably one of my favorite, favorite episodes of this entire podcast. And I have a lot. Um, but what can you say about the genius of Michael McDonald? We were not ready. Actually, I think actually Fonte steals the steals the show in this episode uh, with his total rendition of the Al Dunbar "What's Happening" Doobie Brothers episode. Uh, no more spoiler alerts. Let's just get into it. From October twenty fifth, two thousand seventeen, this is the classic Michael McDonald episode. Questlove Supreme. All right, that was my Michael McDonald invitation. Quest love, yeah. AKA best love, yeah. I'm so chill, love, yeah. Cause I got real love. <laughs> Suprema, Suprema roll call. Suprema, roll call. My name is Fonte, yeah. You don't have to run far, yeah. Cause this show is getting bootlegged, yeah. By Al Dunbar. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I do it. Suprema roll call. Suprema, Michael McDonald. Yeah. We're here to meet him. Yeah. My name is Sugar. Yeah. Sean Sweet Freedom. <laughs> Suprema. Oh my God. Suprema. Suprema roll call. Suprema. Suprema roll call. Clear black night. Yeah. Clear white moon. Yeah. Boss Bill was on the streets. Yeah. Oh, wait. That was Warren G. Sorry. <laughs> Suprema. <laughs> Suprema roll call. Are you serious? Suprema roll call. It's Laia. Really? And I'm quite smitten. Yeah. 
Yeah. Michael McDonald? Yeah. I keep forgetting. Roll call. Suprema roll call. Suprema. Suprema roll call. This is McD. Yeah. It's uh, it's me. Yeah. Does anybody have the time? Yeah. That's all I gotta say. I knew you were going to do a What's Happening reference. Hey, man. Oh, is that what that was? I was like, Al yeah, Dunbar. Al Dunbar. Hey, Al Dunbar. Yo, okay, I'm going I'm to be honest with you. Oh, y'all. the Doobie Brother episode. Yes, yeah. okay. I, 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 I have to admit that I spent three hours in bed trying to think of the perfect rhyme scheme <laughs> to reference. Al Dunbar? <laughs> like, I, for real, I, I, from like three in the morning to maybe like I dozed off at six, I had nothing, man. Man, listen. And I was like, I know Fonte is going to have a... a Yo, a, I, a, was gonna, I was going to put a tape recorder in my pants <laughs> up and down and have it fall out. In the I was thinking that too. I, I, I had an elaborate scheme where I was going to, you know... That's going that deep. I, I didn't even remember that one. So. <laughs> it ruled oh our God. lives. Oh, <laughs> man. Yeah. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, our guest today is probably the most beloved figure in the recording industry. Um, I'll probably go as far as to say that he's probably in everyone's top three greatest blue-eyed soul singers um, of all time. I personally believe that he possesses possibly the most influential, most imitated vibrato tenor Um, and you know from his years as an honorary Steely Dannian and a member of the Doobie Brothers uh, not to mention his solo work um, Michael McDonald is a pop culture god uh, amongst mortal men Um, you know and his brand stretches way beyond just singing and songwriting I mean he's he's damn near a lifestyle Uh, ladies and gentlemen please welcome to Questlove Supreme the god himself Oh, Michael oh. McDonald. Yes. Oh my God. Yes. <laughs> Wait. So well, thanks for having me, guys. Thank you. Uh, are you are you thrown off by the the fan worship thrown at you today? Like, because I feel like anytime, especially when I see you, I don't know if it's like you feel like it's a genuine appreciation for your work, or is it like. Is this the notoriety, ironic embracing of, you know, my work? Like, are you genuine or is it just coming from an ironic comedy level? Like, how do how do you feel when people, especially millennials, are coming to you? And well, it, it, you know, it's it's all flattering, really. I mean, you know, I always told my son when you know when your music is no more no longer relevant your pathetic comic value might be so you know <laughs> just go with it you know uh, just you got to take what you can get when you can get it but uh i uh i i'm enjoying myself these days you know it's um uh, we've been out there long enough doing this that uh no one's more amazed than me that we're still doing it at our age you know and, and uh but it's still fun you know and i still love playing live and i love uh, playing with you guys you know I'm looking forward to it we enjoyed it too you know. Every yeah, because I I didn't know I know that uh, one of the times that you visited the show, I know that you know 
well, you came with Donald Fagan, and you know he was sort of like, are they clowning us or are they actually respecting us? And you know, I was we were so thrown off because it's like, yo, th- he doesn't know that we like this is what we worship. You know what I mean? And it's not because I know about the, you know yacht rock culture and all those comedy bits on online, and it could seem like it's from a jokey angle. But I always wondered like, what was your personal perspective in as far as like? Do you think it's just novelty or or, or any of those things? So, uh, you know, I I I always enjoyed it, and and I had fun that de- night. But I I, I did uh, I I don't think the the other guys enjoyed it as much as I did. <laughs> so, well, uh, thank you, man. Um, so you you started out in St. Louis, right? You were born- I did. I grew up in Ferguson. Yeah. Crazy! Yikes! Yo, can you can you talk about that? Because literally, my mother's born and raised in St. Louis, and I called oh, really? her this morning because I was like, "Mommy, did you know Michael McDonald's in St. Louis?" And she was like, "No." I said, "Well, this is interesting because y'all are around the same age. Right. Growing up in St. Louis, very polarized. Ferguson, maybe mm-hmm. not be the Ferguson that we know today." No, that's right. You know, I mean, uh, that's you know, on the, in the, where the conversation is at this point today is is exactly where it needs to be. You know, I mean. Uh, I think in the 60s, we all really believed that we were going to be the generation that didn't leave the burden on our next generation of racism in America, you know. Uh, and unfortunately, that hasn't proven to be true, you know, uh, as much as we'd all like to think. I think we made great strides because I remember Ferguson in the late 50s. Right, talk about yeah. it because people yeah. it's probably totally different. Oh, yeah. You know, I mean... Uh, you know, it, it was apartheid is really what it was. You know, I mean, nothing less. You know, uh, when you if you were black in uh, America in a small town like Ferguson, and if, you know, it was uh, you were not allowed to live in the mainstream. You were ostracized from mainstream society, plain and simple. You couldn't walk into the Dairy Queen without causing a stir. You know what I mean? It was, uh, and I remember as a kid. You know that wasn't lost on me. I remember, you know, like laying awake at night. My two great fears uh, were they were going to drop the bomb, <laughs> and uh, and I remember thinking, you know, I could have been born black. It's like fifty fifty, you know, uh, and I just didn't understand why uh, the things were the way they were, you know. But uh, you know, even you know the fact the reason I mention that is like that it wouldn't even be lost on a four year old kid or a five year old kid that. You know, at the earliest ages, we look at our society around us in surprising ways, and we go, "What does this all mean? Why? Why is this this way? Why is it that way? And why don't adults do something about it? Why don't adults make this right?" You know, mm-hmm. uh, and so we start right there, understanding that adults don't make things right. You know, that adults don't do the right thing. You know, and uh, and so that we spend the rest of our lives just kind of you know compromising with that you know and, and uh, you know understanding it's not a perfect world but um you know and it's funny because you know for all the press that ferguson has gotten it's a great town it's it's a better town than it was when i was a kid i mean in so many ways i mean i go back there a bit quite a bit you know i don't live there anymore but uh when i lived there it was post-war and you know, the downturn in the American economy was something people don't remember. But after the war, it was like uh, a lot of small towns like that kind of went into depression. You know, a lot of the mom and pop stores closed up. And Ferguson, you know, had had suffered that like a lot of places until the 
suburbs took over, you know, mm-hmm. and the shopping malls and stuff like that. And, th- and that pretty much killed, you know, uh, communities like Ferguson. So I grew up in that period where, you, you know, you walk down Main Street Ferguson, there wasn't much going on, you know. Today, it's... It's a, it's you know a lot more uh, of an economic upturn, you know, and uh, so, you know, I think what we got to really do as a society is learn to have the conversation, you know. It's like the, what's going on right now with the NFL, and you know, we we got a, uh, we, you know, unfortunately we have a, a guy at the helm who wants to stir it up and and be divisive, you know. That's a shame because this is the perfect opportunity for the conversation we all be, need to be having. Mm-hmm. You know, those guys are embracing peaceful protest. It may not be the uh, venue you'd like to see it in if you're a football fan or whatever, you know, whatever your problem with it is. And the whole idea that it's all about the flag and the flag is all about the military is, is not true. The flag is about freedom. Mm-hmm. And that's what the conversation's about. And these guys aren't risking, they're not destroying my property. They're not hurting anyone. The only thing they're putting at risk is their own livelihood. And so I applaud their courage, you know. And I think it's a conversation that we got to have, you know. And it's going to be painful because growth is painful, you know. But, it, it you know, that's... That's the great America that, that I think most of us are talking about. You know, America is getting great, you know, and it, it can continue to get great, but this isn't the time mm-hmm. to fall asleep at the wheel or to turn back the hands of time to something that was not great. But it's fascinating since you grew up in such a divisive situation that you have, that you, like, how did you get introduced to soul in that way? Is it just that natural to you? Because, like you said, Ferguson, black people and white people kind of, Separate in that way, like. Uh, well, you know, it was it was the, the it was society in the fifties. You know, I mean, uh, uh, you know, uh, so many of my friends are younger than me, and they don't really remember. You know, they don't really know. I mean, and in black or white, or you know, African American or, or Caucasian or whatever they you know might be, very few of them remember America the way it was. You <laughs> know, and. Uh, it it wasn't great for a lot of people, you know. So it wasn't a footloose narrative where rock and roll came in and saved the town and that sort of thing. Oh, <laughs> uh, you know, it's funny. Uh, the British invasion probably did more to bring uh, awareness to uh, mainstream radio listeners, white radio listeners, uh, uh, an awareness of uh, real American music than. American radio did at the time. Right. Uh, a lot of the artists, for instance, the Womack brothers, they had a, a top 10 hit on uh, what would have been considered black radio at the time, which most white people did, didn't listen to, didn't know about, you know. Mm-hmm. And it was a song called uh, It's All Over Now. When the Rolling Stones did it, it was a huge hit. You know, and Bobby Womack made the comment, we were heartbroken until the checks started coming in. <laughs> goes, but but the still, it, it, that's that speaks like, uh, you know, uh, even Motown, as popular as it was in mainstream radio, uh, the British acts, the Beatles, probably had some of the biggest hits of Smokey Robinson songs, you know, mm-hmm. uh, because they reached a whole other audience and uh, that uh, that was segregated in the United States at that time, you know. Uh, uh, so you know, uh, so even the jazz scene wasn't thriving at all, or it was, it was, but that that was a, I think, a very, um, you know, that was a, a kind of a, a I don't want to say elite sector of 
intellectual music listeners society. <laughs> it wasn't mainstream. You know, okay. jazz was not mainstream. Uh, it it, it kind of was in the 50s. It was uh, probably rock and roll kind of took over where jazz left off in the 50s because jazz was that kind of bold... Uh, and a lot of people growing up in the 50s were drawn to that, you know, to the, the, the artistic boldness of jazz and, you know, and everything that was. But then in rock and roll kind of took over the mainstream, you know. But, uh, you know, as a kid, I, I remember uh, the first time I heard records like uh, Edwin Starr's Stopper on Sight. That was a record that sticks out in my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, it was my sister and her friends were playing it and they were blasting it over a car speaker and... And I, up to that point, was pretty much aware of what I knew at my age group, which was all these English bands coming out, you know. Right. And, uh, but when I heard that record, it was, it was like all of a sudden there was this sophistication to the rhythm track. That this, you know, the guitar was kind of tucked in and syncopated and, and, and you know, uh, more interesting in, in a lot of ways. It wasn't there's just so it broad, spoke to you. Broad strokes, yeah. It was. It had a, a certain kind of sophistication that I really appealed to me, and and it was from that point on that I really list, started listening to uh, artists that I had prior to that not really been that aware of. You know. Do you remember the first record that you ever purchased? Yeah, it was uh, the Everly Brothers. Wake up, little Susie. I, oh wow! <laughs> I, me and a friend of mine pooled our money and went and bought the forty five and. Yeah. How much were 45s back when you were growing up? Same as they are now, a buck. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're the one industry where the price has not gone up. What was on the B-side of that? On the B-side, I don't remember. Uh, it was that record and the Chipmunks Christmas song that was my two big <laughs> first records. You know? It's a great song. Sorry. Go ahead. No, no. Uh, well, uh, I like B-sides. Sorry. You know, I know. you I was waiting for your jazz question. No, <laughs> no I mean, that's, I never thought of it that way, that, that rock and roll took over where, where jazz left off in that sense. Uh, yeah, I, I think in a cultural sense, jazz was that daring uh, music... Yeah, um, taboo a little bit. ...genre right? that, that, you know, if you were really cool, you listened to jazz, you know. Hmm. Uh, that's, so was then, there a cool hip factor in St. Louis, a... Yeah, counterculture, if you will. Yeah, it definitely took place around Gaslight Square in St. Louis, downtown St. Louis area, south. You know, kind of somewhere between South. I, I'm not really sure where Gaslight Square was, to be honest with you. But I remember that's where my parents went to hear music. You know, and it was like uh, there were jazz clubs, and uh, and then the tornado hit it. One of the big tornadoes came through and leveled the place, and it never kind of recovered from that. You know, it was it would be like. Uh, where the village in, in, you know, in okay. Soho. the hip part of town. You know. uh, concert, like, were you attending concerts at all? Or, like, what was the first show you remember seeing? Uh, let me think about that. I remember going to see uh, this thing called the Alsac Show. It was a the, the big AM radio station in St. Louis, KXOK, and uh, they brought uh, this show to, to town. It was like a charity event and uh wilson pickett was on uh, oh, wow. was a one of the headliners so up there was the memphis rhythm section memphis horns right. you know the whole the whole gang and it was like uh, just this powerful experience to hear those guys in uh keel auditorium you know and uh and that was one of the that shows another great show i saw there was the bgs once uh, I, I was driving around and i saw their name on the marquee 
And a friend of mine and I went in. The Australian version? Or yeah, the, 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 the Bee Gees. Yeah. <laughs> Back when they were the Beatles? And this is long before their big resurgence. Right. You know, this was like, you know, uh, 60s, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, we went in there and it was like the first two rows had people and nothing else. It was like there was no one knew that they, it was, you know, they, and these guys came out and did this show as if the place was filled to the brim. You know, they just didn't, undaunted, they just put on this great show. And I remember thinking, man, that's that's pretty cool. You know, uh, I should somehow I remembered that. You know, and wait, uh, you casually walked by, <clears throat> saw the Bee Gees on the marquee, and was like, hmm, let's see what's yeah, yeah. How much yeah, were we, shows back then that you could just not be much? Like, <laughs> it's probably about five bucks a piece. We went in and saw these guys play. You know, it's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> and at that point, had you started singing yet to yourself in the shop? Had you started singing yet? Yeah, I was in. I was in a band. In fact, me and this this friend of mine were in, in a band together, and. Uh, we um, I, we were just driving around St. Louis, you know, doing pretty much nothing as usual, you know. And uh, I saw the, the, uh, the them on the marquee and hadn't heard a thing about it. So we just you know walked up and tickets were place was not even close to being sold out. But they did a great show. How did you start playing? Were you self taught or did you take lessons? Uh, I'm just uh, just self taught, you know. I uh, my I started off playing tenor banjo. For my dad, who sang, uh, he was a singer and sang in a lot of bars. Not so much professionally, but he he sang, you know, uh, and people kind of knew him as a singer, you know. So when he walked in a saloon, everybody wanted him to sing, and <laughs> so I followed him around a lot as a kid. And uh, I would play tenor banjo for him, and uh, he would do, you know, uh, old like ragtime songs and Irish songs, and you know, Danny Boy was his big number, and. Um, so uh, I, I got the chance, the, the significance of that was I got to hear a lot of great piano players, got the guys that he would go to visit who played piano in these bars. And uh, uh, and it was amazing how talented they were. Uh, looking back, especially, I, I realized that these, these, these were great musicians, you know. But uh, here they were in the corner bar in St. Louis playing Bill Bailey, Won't You Please Come Home for all these drunks. And, <laughs> and they hated every minute of it, you know. Anyone else in your family, uh, singers? Or- yeah, my sisters both sing, you know, and uh, they yeah. both got got nice voices. Your sister, she's singing background on. I keep, keep forgetting. forgetting. Yeah. yeah, Maureen, that's Maureen. She still sings with me. My sister Kathy still sings with me, and uh, you know, once in a while we'll do these shows around town, just like charity events and stuff, and uh, the family will come out and sing for me. What'd your dad say when he realized you had the voice? Because he knew the banjo. He but- said, uh, "Get your high school equivalency exam." <laughs> you know. He wasn't a big fan of the music. But, I mean, it wasn't that he wasn't, but I don't think he saw it as a viable living. You know, and uh, I don't think any parent until it becomes until, a viable. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. He, well, no one was prouder that uh, I was able to make a living at it. You know, but uh, in hindsight, did you always have the voice that we know as Michael McDonald? Uh, and probably the, not. There's so know. much technique in it. Like, who's teaching you? Or who are you emulating? And you know, where'd you learn control and your vibrato and your tone? You know, I, my, a lot of my singing voice came from uh, singing in bars. You know, because I had to preserve it. I, I had was going to gonna say, it. smoke or beer it had to be bars. <laughs> that, that too <laughs> had yeah, to be yeah. Drinking and, and uh, tobacco <laughs> had something to do with it. I thought it was a good thing for a while until uh, it was you know, a great thing for us. Yeah. But no, I, I uh, early on I realized that if I wanted to sing like uh, James Brown and uh, uh, some of the uh, you know the, the, 
the shouters, you know, the, right. the, the great uh, uh, blues singers. Uh, I wouldn't have a voice very long if I did, you know, you know, like uh, uh, Mitch Ryder and all those singers yeah. that, that were famous for their screams, you know. But uh, so I, I, I developed a, a style that where I could kind of sound like I was putting more into it than I really had to, so I could sing five sets a night, you know. And uh, that's awesome. uh, genius. Five sets a night. Yeah, we did. We did. I did a lot of that in L.A. We'd play like three, four, five sets a night, and sometimes go after hours. You know, and some go across town and play in after hours clubs. You know. So, what brought you to L.A. as far as a record deal? Originally, I came out to to do a record for RCA Records. Your own. Not with yeah, it was on. my own. Uh, I'm I'm only hesitant to mention it for fear that someone might actually find it and listen to it. <laughs> oh, they will. <laughs> oh God! You got <laughs> discovered in St. Louis. Uh, yeah, I was actually in Champaign, Illinois, playing in a bar, and uh, a producer, a guy who I'm, I know to this day, uh, who was from, believe it or not, Champaign, Illinois. He grew up on a farm there. Went to L.A. and uh, he, with the New Christie Minstrels. Remember the New Christie Minstrels? It was a like a folk singing group, you know. And um, he, uh, if you watch that movie, uh, Mighty Wind, that's pretty much that oh, era. Okay. Yeah. Okay, like so anyway, band. he was in one of those groups, and and he met his wife. But anyway, he wound up producing records for RCA Records. He produced the first Jefferson Airplane album, uh, Harry Nilsson, Jose Feliciano, you know. Had quite a run, you know, producing some great records. And he heard me in a bar, signed me up, and I came out to California. And, and the, the good part of that story is he he kept me alive by using me on sessions that I had no business being on. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I was playing with these guys who were really A-list guys, and they had to put up with me because this guy wanted me to get paid, you know. And you were, you were singing on these sessions? I, I was playing piano. Oh, you were playing piano. Yeah. Oh, wow. I had even less business being on those <laughs> sessions. On, on which, on which uh, sessions? Oh, uh, you know, things like um, everything from David Cassidy to Jack Jones to uh, uh, John, Hart, John Hartford, uh, you know, just things that he was producing at the time, some Jose Feliciano tracks maybe. Uh, but... Um, it it gave me experience I would have never gotten otherwise, you know, and uh, really where I learned, you know, how to play with other musicians on a whole nother level, you know, uh, in a more, much more professional capacity. And you're I, still just self-taught at this point. You're just kind of figuring it out. Yeah, as you, go along. you know, uh, I was came from bar bands in St. Louis. It was like the first one to the bridge gets the solo. You know, it was like we were just <laughs> rushing ahead. You know, <laughs> wow. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, as we are. Very uh, curious on Questlove Supreme. We would like to uh, play a bit of God Knows by Young Mike McDonald. Oh, Oh my God. Exclusive. This is going to be painful. Stay. Knowing that I love you anyway. 
Tom Jones makes the Partridge family. <laughs> I dig it. Like, how old were you in, on that recording? Uh, 18, I believe. And you sounded like 40. Yeah, kind of little. Yeah, DJ Thomas is a little. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I feel it. Yeah. I feel it. No, there's nothing embarrassing about that, man. Yeah, nothing, nothing bad about that at all. Yeah, it was, it was great. Thank you, uh, Mike kind. McDonald. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, uh, while within in, in L.A., uh, are you interacting at all, or how are you running into what will eventually be your peers of the mid seventies to mid eighties, like the the Picaros, the Pages, the, the I Robbins? Met, uh, yeah, I you know that was I probably met those guys more on the club level, doing casuals. Uh, one of the first gigs I ever remember meeting Jeff Picaro. Uh, I'm not even sure I met him that night. We were playing in a club in uh, the Valley. San Fernando Valley, and his band came in and played, and they were all underage. They were all like uh, junior high school age. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the band. They were named after their street <laughs> they lived on, and it was all Grant High School kids, freshman year. And Jeff was this phenomenal drummer, and they were kind of a fusion band, you know. So uh, the, it was interesting because. Uh, Every ending, Jeff Jeff kind of did a cymbal solo for it. Ended each song with this, you know, kind of, <laughs> you know, and uh, but he was obviously really great. And uh, the next time I, I I heard about him doing sessions after that, and uh, the next time I met him, we played a casual for a TV show that was a rap party for Universal Studios. And uh, make a long story short, my girlfriend was the contractor on this show. She was a bass player. At the time, Brandy uh, and uh, oh, I thought to say Carol Kay. I'm like, wait a minute, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, 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 no. But she uh, she left to go do a gig in Vegas, and she said, make sure you do this gig, and t- and will you get the band together, and will you do this gig for me? I said, sure. She goes, you're not going to leave it to the last minute, and you know, and and have it be a complete, uh, you know, disaster. Disaster. Uh, I said, no, I, I promise I won't. Well, of course I did. And you, you know? did, right, right. So at the last minute, I'm, I called a sax player friend of mine, and he goes, I know these cats. They do sessions. He goes, but they love to play, and uh, they'll probably do it for free. I said, even better, you know. Right. But I just, I need somebody. So we, we all showed up. None of us knew each other. We didn't rehearse. We just played every top 40 song we could think of. And then for the next three sets, we played the same ones over again. But they were all pretty <laughs> drunk by then, and nobody cared, you know. And... uh we uh, it was Jeff Picaro, David Page, Mike Picaro uh, on bass. The monsters. Yeah, and uh, the next time I talked to Jeff was like a year later. He called me through this same girl, Brandy, and uh, he said, uh, "I'm looking for uh, Mike. Uh, we're auditioning for Steely Dan, and I thought maybe he could play some keyboard and and sing. You know, uh, do some of the backgrounds because they're looking to kind of keep the band small. You know." And so as soon as I heard, I threw my piano in my pinto and I drove down to Modern <laughs> Music and uh, uh, auditioned and, you know, miraculously got the job, you know, and uh, wound up touring the world with those guys before they wow. broke up, you know, which is... Were so you cool. playing a Wurlitzer or... A, a little Wurlitzer, a little black Wurlitzer, yeah. Okay. Listen, black representation is essential. If I hadn't seen and heard certain black women in radio, I wouldn't be in radio. Women like Robin Breeden, Candy Shannon, Michelle Wright... 
Deanna Williams, women owning radio stations like Kathy Hughes. Listen, the next generation of influential black voices can be found on NPR's new collection, Black Stories, Black Truths. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the black experience itself. Word. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of struggle. Each episode is a living account about what it means to be black today, told from a unique black perspective. From Bobby Smurder to The Wire, Michelle Obama to reparations, there's no limit to the range of black stories, black truths. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Here are a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center Black voices. It's NPR Noir. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so I feel silly. Because as much traveling as I do, and as many Airbnbs that I stay in, because that's the only way I travel, I really have never considered my own space. I mean, think about it. What if you can make money for your next vacation while you're on vacation? And I know what you're thinking. You're like, my house is just not fancy enough. I just can't do the things. You're sleeping on your space. I'm sleeping on my space. Yes, I'm talking to myself. And I really don't even have to use my whole place. I could just Airbnb a room. I know how this works. Because again, I use Airbnb. Duh. I mean, just think about it. Most of us that use Airbnb are only using it for 50% of its power. We're spending the money, but we're not making the money. What if we could do both? Whoa, mind-blowing. And your home really might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, it's Steve Cavino from Cavino and Rich here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new Toyota truck like a rugged half-ton Tundra. Workhorse by nature, powerhouse by design, the Tundra combines raw capability with premium comfort and advanced tech to fuel your wildest adventures. And with the available iForce Max Hybrid powertrain, you can take electrifying horsepower farther than ever before. Or check out the fully redesigned Tacoma delivering trail-dominating power and captivating style. The new Tacoma was born to make your off-roading dreams come true. And with the new available tech, this legendary truck is getting even better. When you buy a Toyota truck... You buy Toyota dependability, meaning your truck will hold this value long into the future. So visit your local Toyota dealer. Check out the amazing national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. For those that don't know, and I've always just heard the legend of Steely Dan just being a studio group. Like, what what was the initial meat and potatoes of the band? You you came in during, what, Katie lied or... Right, they were. They they hadn't started KD Live yet. They were, Pretzel Logic was the record they were touring on. They just had just finished Pretzel Logic. Okay. So was there ever besides uh, Fagan and and Becker were there core members that were? Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, the band at that time existed as uh, Steely Dan, Donald Walter, uh, Jimmy Hodder on drums, mm-hmm. and Jeff Beccaro on drums, uh, and um, Walter played bass. Denny Diaz played guitar, and Jeff Baxter played uh, guitar. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
myself uh, playing some keyboards and singing backgrounds. Royce Jones played percussion and sang backgrounds. And Royce was uh, another L.A. guy that played clubs and, you know, uh, uh, a great singer and a great percussionist. But uh, so we were that was pretty much the core group, the whole group right there. How was it moving into their their band? Because as a self-taught player, I mean, the stuff they're playing is pretty advanced. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Like, how did you figure all that stuff out? Um, well, Donald showed me, you know, what he wanted me to play pretty much, you know, and, and, uh, and which was basically backing him up on piano and, uh, uh, with, with electric piano. And, uh, and it was, uh, it was great. It was a real education for me, especially in songwriting. Cause all of a sudden I saw how he voiced these chords that, uh, and, and there was a simplicity to it that was ingenious, you know, that I, I, I kind of learned that a lot of times, uh, the the harmonic vastness of their songs really came from the fact that the chords were uh, very simple kind of triads you know with uh, not, not in unusual forms you know like uh, uh, one two inverted five. yeah yeah, yeah you know, like, you know, like a, uh, and um, a lot of times that's how the chords moved you know in that kind of symmetric pattern but uh, it it really if it, it gave it just opened my whole head up to composition you know pop songwriting you know for sure yeah Yeah, but how can you explain the phenomenon of steely dan because it's for me maybe because i i grew up 10 years later you know i i see probably the figure that i see that came close to experimenting as far as he could and staying pop was prince yeah oh yeah so what what were the what were uh, Fagan and Becker's work habits as far as like was their intention to make digestible pop music multi layered with this this intricate jazz approach? I mean, and I know at least watching the the, the documentary for like Asia, Asia how. Yeah. How animal retentive they were, like how as taskmaster solos, <laughs> yeah, like how what were their work habits like in the studio? It, it was, uh, you know, nothing stood in the way between them and and the end game. You know what they really were trying to go for. I, what I find most interesting about Steely Dan, and I remember we toured with them not that long ago, maybe about four or five years ago, and of course, we I would stick around every night and listen to their set and. Uh, they uh, every night I, I would it would hit me you know these guys were the darlings of top 40 radio for like 10 15 years and their music is so weird you know it's <laughs> so strange and it's so eclectic how did they manage that you know but uh, you know i know in their as far as their work habits like you mentioned they were very insulated down and walter they they seemed to be to me they they would kind of go off somewhere unknown to anyone else and write these songs and uh, and I know that just from my own experience of being around them in rehearsal and stuff that uh, some of the influences they had were surprising to me. Like Duke Ellington, is, it was a huge influence on on those guys, you know, on their on the makeup of their band and, and the, the the you know the chord progressions they wrote, uh, the, the the way they uh, you know their, the harmonic sense that they had with their songs was uh, uh, they really. Uh, that sophistication that Steely Dan has kind of probably the most direct influence I can think of would be Duke Ellington and wow. artists like that, you know, uh, 
that were uh, uh, that they somehow kind of twisted into this pop uh, format mm-hmm. genre, you know. All right, so I'm just going to jump to it. Um, Peg. <laughs> how? In this background. How? Um, I feel like Peg is probably on record as one of the most intricate, crafted background. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, you trying to match it? Yeah, oh, I was like, <laughs> I was like, why do you keep listening to Michael McDonald? He's like, that's me. I was like, no, 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 that's not right. That's <laughs> this is me. This is my my band. Like, something <laughs> advancing. Uh, it's a dedication to you. Like, yeah. Oh, yeah. How, dude? I think that sounds better than what, the last time we sang it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what I was going to ask. One, how do you? How do you? How do you guys recreate the stuff on stage? Well, it was a group of us, you know, singers, and and are they as anal retentive on stage as? Well, Donald kind of gives us the parts, you know, and um, like when I sang it in the studio, my biggest problem was I couldn't sing the harmonies listening to the last harmony I did because it was too close. Close, yeah. And uh, so you do it separate? Yeah, you know, if I if I, if I were a little more uh, schooled as a singer, I might have been able to pull that off, but. So I would just have them turn off the last part I sang and then give me the new part. I'd sing it. And then the first time I heard it all together was after I finished it. You know? Wow. But, uh, but on, in, live on stage, we would sing the parts. Uh, and we would, you know, you'd get your part in your head. And then you only have to be you know, responsible for that one part. And with Donald, I always wanted to make sure I sang it in tune and on time. So I sang most of those parts while staring at him across stage to see. <laughs> but are there five stage. other people also matching the notes? Yeah, well, the girls and uh, yeah, it was me and the girls pretty much, you know, uh, and and Donald, you know. Uh, and was the touring unit not? It wasn't the same as the the studio unit, correct? No, no, it was uh, the the Steely Dan as it has been in recent past with uh, Catherine Russell and Carolyn Linehart singing. You know, two great great singers, you know. Wow. Um, yeah, kudos to that because I no, still don't think you get enough credit for or respect for that. I mean, it just sounds so effortless that you you take it for granted. Nah, it's, yeah, it's it's, it's well, tough. those guys. That was all there. He's always there. You know, I came in late on these recordings. Typically, the tracks were done. And uh, how, how physically? How long did it take for you to do? Uh, you know, we typically, I don't think I ever did more than two tracks in a, in a given session. Usually, you know, and more, probably more often one, you know, that they were concentrating on for that day, you know. Um, so you're saying you just literally breezed through Peg in under a half hour? <laughs> I wouldn't say I breezed through anything with those guys, you know. It was, uh, I, you know, I, and there were some tracks I actually didn't, I, I, I wasn't able to do, you know, like... Uh, I remember Dr. Wu, they had sent me that track in advance and said, you know, we would like to hear your voice on this. And I loved the song, and I, I wanted more than anything in the world to be able to do that track because I just particularly loved that tune, you know. And I couldn't I couldn't do it. You had to sing it all in one breath, and I smoked way too much at that point in my life <laughs> to pull that off. You know? So uh, I was really disappointed, and, of course, they never let me live it down, but, you know. It was all in good fun, but uh, you know there were times when I I really was not the guy, so 
uh, how do they? Yeah, I know they're they're infamous for replacing. Like, okay, you're not going to nail it. Get someone else. To do. Yeah. How how do they break that news to you without usually, usually, hurting your feelings? Usually, no. It was you have to t- take those guys. They always had a great sense of humor. Those guys, and you know, they would be the first two that got fired. You know, they they would fire themselves before they fired everyone else. You right. Know? So I mean, a lot of the tracking, Donald would have Michael Marty and play piano, or uh, and uh, or Victor Feldman and. Uh, Walter would have uh, different bass players, you know. Uh, so uh, on standby in the break room, like Chuck uh, Rainey. Oh no, they just would. They would just go ahead and hire other guys to do the parts that they, you know, would do live later. You know, just just to get the the track to feel the way they wanted it to feel. You know, um, were you guys aware at the time that you were laying the blueprint for? And there's always debate on, you know, I I see. I mean, I'm saying yacht rock now. I'm mm-hmm. Probably you hate the term yacht rock the same way that I kind of scuffle with the word neo soul. <laughs> but I mean, in hindsight, it's a very quick way to describe this genre sure. music that feel. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know if it's like a California sound or whatever. And it's so weird because I know that critics, at least back then, like the guys that I interact with now, th- th- who are music critics that are like kind of in their 60s now and 70s. I can tell, like, they they seem so, not apologetic, but, you know, if we talk about second half of Chicago or right. Toto's music or whatever, like, any, you know, they're always like, oh, I'm sorry. And I'm like, no, like, I love that shit. Like, like I don't listen to NWA 100% of the time. Like, <laughs> I listen to everything else. But it, Critic, were you guys sort of aware of Critic's sort of, well, I mean, they didn't dismiss Steely Dan as much, but I'm just saying, like, critics hold scoffed notion of what L.A. soft rock was. You know, yes and no. I mean, uh, I uh, I think we, we got a lot of, you know, bad press a lot of the time, you know, for initially. And then, you know, if the record got popular, then it was, you know, we always story. loved it. Yeah. You know, <laughs> but, uh, but I think it just, that just kind of comes and that's kind of part of the deal. You know, um, I don't know that we were any different than anyone else. You know, it's funny. I was watching the Eagles documentary and, you know, I thought every album they had was like this gigantic success you know right but according to the documentary there were periods and records they did where the record company was thinking of dropping them or you know or you know they went through their own trial and error of uh and they wanted to be more of a rock band and it was like oh come on this country band wants to be a rock band now you know right and they they had to face all that same kind run that same kind of gauntlet with critics and and record people and so i think every band goes through that you know uh it's it's just what's going on in the inside compared to what people think is going on from the outside yeah well speaking of which since you brought it up were you aware of any kind of light ribbing rivalry between the two camps the eagles and steely dan i know lyric wise they were throwing yeah, jabs yeah. no i i didn't i didn't really think that was true i i think that was a manufactured kind of a press thing and i because uh i don't know that it really ever was anything between i think it was just a lyric in the song if you know what i mean uh, okay uh and uh kind of like uh when chuck berry saying i couldn't unfaster her safety belt it was just a kind of a tip of the hat to the times we lived in you know? right okay uh and uh you know uh which by the way i thought i remember when i was a kid we backed him up and i thought how clever is this this guy 
because safety belts had just come out that year, and, <laughs> right. and here he is putting in a song already, you know. But uh, I, I think the same thing with the Eagles. You know, the reference in that song was just, uh, you know, it's kind of life in today's world. You know, I'm sorry. Living, what, what reference are we are we talking uh, about? Turn down the Eagles. The neighbors are listening. You know, I don't think it was really meant to be a slam at the Eagles. I th- and what, I think they just kind of played off of it. it. Royal it, scam in humor. Yeah, yeah. Okay. the royal scam. Yeah. Royal scam. Yeah. There's light lyrical references, which if it were hip hop. You know, shots. It could have yeah, been shots. Would have been fired. Yeah. <laughs> um, so obviously, uh, Jeff uh, Skunk pulls you. Can I assume that he he pulled you into the doobies? Yeah, in the doobies as you guys were working together on the Steely Dan. Was he in? He Steely well, Dan that, during it, your period, or yes, he was, and we toured together, and uh, then the Donald Walter. Uh, disbanded the band, you know, uh, in that period of time, and I, I and I felt kind of like Timothy Schmidt said, you know, uh, I just got the best gig of my life, and these assholes break up. You know? <laughs> why? Yeah. Is this why? after Gaucho? Was this uh, after uh, it was? Um, uh, Roy, it was. Uh, excuse me. Uh, Katie, Katie. Katie. Right Light. after Katie Light. Oh. Right, right before Katie Light, actually. Yeah. Why did they break up? Uh, I I don't know. I, I wouldn't speculate myself uh, uh, because. It, it wasn't really a part of their world that I was privy to, if you know what I mean. I was just kind of a for hire guy. You well, know? you mean the period between Asia? You joined the Doobies in '77. Um, well, it, yes, uh, no, '75 is when I taken to the streets. I think we did in okay. So that was '75. Yeah. yeah, so there was like three, four years between Gaucho was Gaucho was '80. So yeah. it was like Royal yeah. Scam yeah. And, and so Royal it was Scam. a long. So yeah. you're saying that period wasn't just. A writer's block hiatus. It was like we break up, and then. Well, let's see. I mean, they were they were starting. Katie lied by the time we got done touring, you know, and so it wasn't too long after that. Maybe six months later, that I went in the studio with them for Katie lied and sang those backgrounds on Bad Sneakers and some other things. Um, and then Royal Scam was the next record, and then Gaucho, I believe. Um, Asia, then Gaucho. Yeah, Asia, and then Gaucho. Um, so, you know, uh, they were, they stayed fairly busy, you know, through that period, but they just no longer were Steely Dan as, as we all knew them originally, you know, as a band, but more as Walter and Donald, you know. Okay. Did you, I mean, how, why was, I'm trying to figure out why, what my question is, I'm sorry. Why wasn't it? I, I think the biggest, uh, you know, and again, I, 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 it's probably not my place to even say this, uh, but the uh, one of the things I, I, I thought at the time was they no longer wanted to tour, and yeah. the only real livelihood the other guys had since they weren't the writers was the touring they did. Right. Know? Okay. So they they wanted to stay on the road, and and I don't think Donald Walter wanted to be on the road anymore. They didn't really care for it, and uh, and so. Uh, it it just uh, it, it created a whole world that they didn't really care to be a part of. They wanted to be in the studio and they wanted to be writing songs, you know. And uh, oh, okay. So they they that was kind of a necessity for them to be able to pursue that more freely, to not have the band to, to consider, you know. Oh, yeah, because yeah. there ain't the live going on but the writ. <laughs> <laughs> so how how easy was the transition to the Doobies? Um, surprisingly easy, uh, 
not nothing I counted on. I mean, I got the call from Jeff, and uh, I flew down to New Orleans. And really, it was only uh, ostensibly I was just going to uh, fill in for Tommy while he was uh, took a medical leave, pretty right. much from the middle of this tour. Um, and then as things uh, progressed, and that tour came to a close, uh, um, there was the Back then, it was like the Doobies was one of those bands that uh, they took very seriously an album a year, you know, and the mm-hmm. label was really after them to get another record. Um, and the way things worked out, uh, it was kind of just, uh, okay, they, we were all kind of caught unprepared. I, I really didn't see myself as part of that part of the band, but uh, I had made a demo with Tyran at his house. In a, he had put together this home studio and uh, he said, you want to try recording something? I said, sure. You know, I was just over at his house for dinner. And mm-hmm. so we threw this song down. It was just something I had been in my head and, you know, and I, uh, we recorded it and I put the vocal down and we thought it sounded pretty good. And uh, uh, he played it for Ted Templeman and mm-hmm. Ted said, you guys should cut this. This is kind of weird and, and different, you know, for the band. And it was a song called The Losing End, which was like the last song on earth I thought the Doobie Brothers would ever do, you know. Mm-hmm. And that would wind up being like the first track we cut on for the Take It to the Streets record. And then so I, I hurried up and finished a couple of songs that had just been living in my head, you know. One was Taking It to the Streets and uh, Keeps You Running. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so the, the, the album kind of started to take shape. Pat had some songs, and, and Tommy was not really ready to come back to the, uh, to the group in, in that touring schedule and, and, uh, and work. Uh, he was still pretty much on hiatus at the time. And, and, he, and his departure was such a gaping hole, in, as you can imagine, you yeah. know, in, in the band. It was, uh, he was such a driving force in the band uh, the whole time, and, and, to this, and remained that, uh, even during the time I was with him, uh, a big part of our show was... The songs he had written for the band, you know. So, I mean, you were kind of thrown into a position similar to Dennis Edwards having to be <laughs> the new Temptation, or even James J T Taylor for Cool in the Game. Cool in the Game. Um, but as far as the songs that uh, that he sang lead on, like when you were first doing your uh, touring with them, like were you were you Having to do uh, South City listen Midnight to the music, Lady, yeah, like oh yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, when I the first gig I did with them, I, I flew to New Orleans. I got picked up by these two guys that I didn't know whether they were going to take me to rehearsal or kill me, you know. <laughs> uh, and uh, we rehearsed in the in this place called the Warehouse in New Orleans. Uh, and um, at the time, at that time in my life, you know. Uh, there was a lot of things going on with me. I was playing clubs for a lot of years. I probably was uh, uh, easy to say down on my luck, so to speak, you know, mm. financially. And, and I was, you know, uh, living in a garage in Burbank. <laughs> uh, and uh, I thought, well, you know, when I got to meet all these guys, uh, uh, I thought, well, this is the gig I've been waiting for. Everybody drinks as much as I do, and you know, and they kind of. Uh, it was a pretty rowdy bunch of guys, you know, and, uh, uh, but the, they, they seemed to have fun, and they, it was a good band. But the, the thing that struck me the first uh, time we played was I was just playing these songs in a bar 
two you know two nights before I came down here in Burbank or Pasadena you know mm-hmm. uh, because they were like the big it was like Mustang Sally listen to the music long train running you had to know those songs if you're going to play in any of the dance bars in LA area so and here I am on stage with these guys playing these songs I, I thought that was kind of ironic you know uh, but um, and, and for the that whole period of time during the time I was with Steely Dan and the Doobies I I lived the two realities you know I was I'd come home and go back to work at the Trojan Club in Pasadena oh wow and then be ready to hit the road with Steely Dan and or the Doobie Brothers you know uh, so wait you were in two full-fledged bands <laughs> well no I, I and doing your your regular club yeah the no the Doobies and Steely Dan that was separate things but during that period when i was with steely dan and and when i was you know one minute i was touring europe with steely dan next minute i was back in pasadena playing at the trojan club (laughs) and then i got an audition to go to new orleans uh, to play with these guys and i stayed with them but during my time off i i went back to playing clubs again just to you know just to stay in uh you know in the circle of guys that I played around LA with, you know. How and, much were you making around that? Yeah, time? I was going like, to say, could you make a viable living? Like were you a, like, "Oh, okay." Not I'm really. Cool. No. I mean, back then for a lot of reasons, one was uh, we we weren't that serious about our top 40 chops and our gigs, you know, we didn't really we weren't one of those bands that really made a living at it. We were guys that did it for the weekend to make a couple hundred Jump bucks change. a piece, you know, and right. have some spending money and uh we you typically didn't rehearse. We just kind of got together and, you know, a lot of the songs you can play. Just the drunker they got. You. Yeah, the, the better <laughs> we sounded, sound. you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, uh, it was that kind of existence in L.A. And then I, I looked to play and sing on whatever. I did a lot of background singing, so that was uh, probably more uh, of, a, of a living for me at the time, you know. You know what? White Luther. <laughs> <laughs> No, yeah, same yeah, story. Because yeah. even yeah. you know Luther's tenure with Sheik and with Sheik and doing, change and all that. Yep. Were you? Did you cut your teeth on it, like the the jingle circuit at all? Like, uh, not so much the jingles. I did a lot of sessions though with uh, Luther Vandross, James Ingram, uh, Philip Ingram. You know, we we were the uh, switch Philip Ingram. Yeah, yeah. Yikes! Uh, and uh, we did a lot of background singing for a lot of people. You know, uh, during that period of time. You know. Well, I know back then, uh, singing for publishing houses was yeah, yeah. a good living. So when I people... think that was more Nashville and New York. Really? Because L.A., it was really typically more the... Uh, and there wasn't even a, a real viable demo scene. Typically, people did their demos for free, you know, and, and uh, it wasn't like Nashville where you can make a living just playing on demos for publishing companies, you know, because there's a lot of publishing companies there. But L.A., the publishing companies weren't... Uh, they weren't in the fray like they were in New York and in, uh, you know, uh, uh, L.A. Uh, I mean, uh, in Nashville. That wasn't the, that wasn't that sector of the music business out there, you know. So you couldn't. My assumption is that you know by seventy five, seventy six, when you're like deep into doobiedom, this wasn't <laughs> like <sighs> okay, I got a good job, I can. Well, it was. Make I mean, living. after a while, well, I quit doing the other things, you know. I mean, and, and and went off to just be a doobie brother, you know. But 
Okay, but I just meant as a. Do you still feel like oh, this could in any moment, and I gotta. Oh, sure. Yeah, I mean, I think we all do in a way. I mean, even now, do you feel like? <clears throat> well, I'm, let's put it this way: I'm surprised I'm still doing this for a living, as much as anyone else. You know, <laughs> I know that. that. <laughs> you know, because I mean, your it, first joke is always like, "I'm still here." Exactly. Like, yeah, you'll wake up and go, "Oh my god!" You know, but I mean, uh, you know, and on the road, there'll be any number of times I'm sitting there going, "You know, you're 65 years old. You know, what the hell are you doing out here?" You know. Um, and I can only gauge the sanity of it by, uh, am I still having fun? You know, I mean, because to me, it's still fun to play live more than almost anything else. I think I enjoy playing live more than I enjoy recording. Recording, wow. Yeah. So, okay, now, I know you said this didn't mean anything to you and you forgot about this, In quote. <laughs> Here we go. But what's happening? <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Yo, what's happening? How many now? people, That's... you can't, you can't, Make me believe that, that no black the person <laughs> in their for well, well, yeah, that, but no black person in their forties to fifties doesn't mention that to you every day oh, of your all life. The time, yeah, man. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I didn't mean to downplay the importance. Of, I that's a very vivid memory in my, you know, for us it was. Did uh, you guys feel like it was an important move? Like, oh, exposure. I don't think we had the sense to realize how important it was. You know, I mean, we just did it as a lark. You know, and. Uh, uh, you know, we thought it would be fun, and our publicist kind of brought the idea to us, and we thought, oh yeah, you know, let's do that. You know, we were just, uh, and it was a two-part episode. Yeah, that, that, that was even better. Yo, that was my first to be continued. <laughs> why, why don't you? Why don't you break it, it down? It was just the, the L. Dunbar that part that I didn't remember. Why, why don't you break it down for the people that haven't seen that? Okay, episode? yeah. So, okay, there was a, a comedy show based on the movie Cooley High called What's Happening in the seventies uh, that featured uh, Ernest. Ernest Thomas Jr., Ernest Thomas Jr. Haywood Nelson, and Fred, uh, Fred Berry. Rerun Berry, uh, who was a prominent member of the Lockers. And Maybelline. Oh, okay, Mabel King. Mabel King. King. Mabel King. Mabel King. Mabel King. Daniel Spencer. So uh, it was a very popular, popular. I, I would dare say it was probably the Martin of the 70s. Well, Martin started and what's happening now. But that's funny. That's he right. Did. Yes, yeah, he, he did. did. Yeah. Yes. Shit. Yes. Martin, yes, I mm -hmm. forgot that. Anyway, so yeah, there, there was an episode... You, you got to explain it was Al Dunbar. Al Dunbar, played by the late, great Theodore Wilson. I thought his name uh, was Sweet Lou or something like that. Like, didn't he have a, a sweet title? Or? He was uh, he was uh, sweet. I oh, think he, he was on, in, good on Good Times. Times. Yeah. Same guy. He was okay. one of those black actors like you saw in every black thing. Yeah. So, right. like, he was uh, <laughs> Theodore Wilson. Remember, yeah. He was Sweet Daddy. Sweet, sweet Daddy. daddy. Sweet Daddy. <laughs> on Good sweet Times. Daddy. Sweet Daddy got on Good Times. Thank you. He was Sweet Daddy. Yes. Okay, so basically there's this show where... The Doobie Brothers are coming to perform at Roger's uh, high school. High school. <laughs> and, you know, Raj, he writes for the paper, so he's covering the show. And so this uh, this this guy from the underworld, the skeevy guy, approaches Rerun in Rob's place <laughs> by the name of Al Dunbar. And he's like, hey, yeah, how would you like tickets for this concert? And he's like, uh, what's the catch? Huh, ain't no catch. I don't know what you just record this show for me. And so, <laughs> and so he asked him to record this show on, like, this huge fucking tape recorder. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, whoever thought that this was going to work. But anyway, so he basically asked Rerun to be like the first Napster and shit. And bootleg. <laughs> <laughs> and bootleg the, the, the Doobie Brothers show. So he go up to the joint 
And so they agreed to do it. You know, he put the he put the stiff arm on him. And he had his goon with him. His goon was uh was Bruno. Well, I think his name was Bruno. And he and at the end of the, and then the episode ends. He's like, oh man, because they, they try not to do it. And so rerun is like, nah, I want to do it. We we could get in trouble. All right, all right, all right. Well, you're just gonna have to tell Mr. Bruno here that he's not gonna get paid. <laughs> Mr. Bruno, uh, will you please pull up a chair and talk to us? Certainly. And Mr. Bruno goes and pulls up a stool. <laughs> And the joint ends, and it's like, to be continued. <laughs> so then the joint opens up, and so, like, they actually talk with the doobies in episode two. They're talking before the show, and so, like, they're like, so, what do you think is the biggest problem? Uh, actually, our biggest problem is probably bootlegging. Bootlegging. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> bootlegging. And so they talk and stuff. So anyway, the show goes on. It's great. Michael does, great. Uh, he does take it to the streets. But wait, time out. They do. At, at actual doobie brothers concerts, did you guys do that fire gun thing? Every every everybody has their the night I almost set my house on fire moment. <laughs> yeah, I might have gotten a Q-tip and oh, a match. What? <laughs> I know you're listening. Oh my god! Twice I played with matches. Yes, you were right. If I watched TV, it was influential. It was very good for you guys to not let me watch that much television. Yeah, when I saw the gong thing, I I went in my my basement on the drums and tried to. <laughs> Hit and it was not good. Was that did they actually do that in, Man, in shows? I'm impressed. I, I can't tell you. Uh, well, I don't remember really what we did on the show. Uh, he I, the, he lit the he, the, he lit the, uh, the, the gong on fire. With, oh, really? It okay. was it was on fire. My <laughs> like now, and, and it, it was cutting to like D and rerun. They were all like looking and stuff. And so then I think y'all do a take. They to played the a, a like a high school in Compton though. Like right, the high school. Yeah. <laughs> the Doobie Brothers doing a rock show. Right. <laughs> And everybody's excited. Yeah, everyone loved Dude, it. And so, because because the album was living on the fault line. That was the album at the time, and he and they were talking about it. So anyway, so the crowd is going crazy, and and uh, Michael McDonald's killing, uh, taking to the streets, he's singing, just going in. Hi, sound Fonte. You don't know me, but I'm your brother. Yeah. Y'all can see me do the dance. Y'all can see me do the dance, man. It was so strong. He was singing through his beard. That shit was amazing. So, Doc, so goddamn Michael McDonald singing that shit. And goddamn, we run, get up, and start jumping up and down. And the tape recorder falls out, falls out. And everybody, everybody. They did the smooth look- criminal lean. That's the first time I saw the smooth criminal lean not done by Michael Jackson. Uh-huh. And it's like, ah. Oh. So then at the end of the joint, they sitting at the, at the, I guess everybody left. They went back home to Compton. And so then they're sitting in like the Doody Brothers. It's like, yo, man, that's fucked up. I thought you was our homie. <laughs> he was like, no, but you are our friends. But this guy told us he would hurt us. It wouldn't be a guy by the name of Al Dunbar, would it? <laughs> yeah, it was Al Dunbar. So then they go back to Rob's place and they catch Al Dunbar and they play the tape and it's just rerun eating chips. I can hear you listening to this episode right now being mad as hell that you're not here to worship the, so the storytelling stylings of Fontigolo. <laughs> Thank you, Vontae. So wait, that's not Thank real you. life. At that time, uh, <laughs> in that time of year, there was never a Doobie Brothers show with a full, cause with a full black crowd. Like were black people embracing you guys? Because yeah. after that episode, after that episode, yeah, yeah. Was, then I was like, oh, Doobie Brothers fan. Uh, you know, yeah. I mean, uh, it was it was funny. I, I found in my solo career, my you know, my first couple records. That's how we got on the radio. Was uh, back then it was more independently owned radio stations, and right. uh, 
And it was really R&B radio that, that picked up our s singles like uh, Keep Forgetting and Sweet Freedom first. And we kind of crossed over to uh, like Top 40 or what, are they, what was it called then, Contemporary Hit Radio, you know. But uh, we really got our start on uh, R&B radio, in which uh, back then you could walk into a small station that was owned by a, a guy who was the program director and on who air. would sit and play your whole record yeah. with you. And and you know you sit and play your whole album, uh, you know, to an audience, uh, and talk about it, and you know that's unheard of today because of all the syndicated kind of radio mm -hmm. things that people just can't do that anymore, or at least not much. Anymore. I heart ain't having it. Yeah. yeah, <laughs> yeah. Okay, so I feel silly because as much traveling as I do, and as many Airbnbs that I stay in, because that's the only way I travel, I really have never considered my own space. I mean, think about it. What if you can make money for your next vacation while you're on vacation? And I know what you're thinking. You're like, my house is just not fancy enough. I just can't do the things. You're sleeping on your space. I'm sleeping on my space. Yes, I'm talking to myself. And I really don't even have to use my whole place. I could just Airbnb a room. I know how this works. Because again, I use Airbnb. Duh. I mean, just think about it. Most of us that use Airbnb are only using it for 50% of its power. We're spending the money, but we're not making the money. What if we could do both? Whoa! Mind-blowing. And your home really might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, it's Ray from the Bobby Bone Show here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Let's go! Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain from the road to the hills to the trails all over. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander, with three spacious rows of seating, up to eight passengers, yeah. And with available features like the panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. Visit your local Toyota dealer, check out amazing national sales event deals on RAV4s, Highlanders, and more. Visit buyatoyota.com. That's buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Hi, it's Sugar Steve from Questlove Supreme. If debit is your go-to card, Discover thinks it's time you get rewarded too. So, check out Discover Cashback Debit, a game-changing checking account with cash back on everyday debit card purchases. That's right, cash back isn't just for credit cards anymore. Whether it's a movie date, flea market find, or midday latte, you can start earning cash back. And did I mention there are no fees, period? Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashbackdebit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. Okay, so let's jump to 1978. Uh, can you please explain to us what was you on when you wrote What a Fool Believes? <laughs> um, it's one of the most notable, memorable, confusing lyric <laughs> word structures I've ever heard I still don't know what the song means. It's <laughs> it's, it's cool, Keith. He sees the wise man has the power. No, to I know the hook. I'm just talking about the narrative. Oh, sure, okay, sure, okay. sure. Um, well, you know, I think the idea was uh, a guy living in his own head, 
believing that uh, he left this great love affair that he needs to retrieve and that it must have been the same for her. And in fact, it meant absolutely nothing to her. <laughs> and, uh, and so you couldn't just write "You're on my mind" all the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. Think about you all the time. Right. I, I don't think we'd be talking about the song now if he had. <laughs> uh-huh. But yeah, you know the funny thing about that song was, uh, uh, I had that riff, in this, the verse riff for uh, easily a year or two, and, and I take sometimes a year to write a song, you know, but. Uh, Every time I'd play it for Ted Templeton, he's, you know, he's, what do you guys got, got any new stuff, you know? So I'd play that little piano riff, and I had just a couple lyrics in the verse, and he goes, God, you, you, you've got to finish that. He goes, I'm telling you, that's a hit. I'm, I, I just feel it, and I go, well, I, yeah, I'm going to finish it, you know? Of course, yeah. never did. And uh, I was getting together with Kenny Loggins for the first time, and he came down to my house. Uh, and my sister was cleaning the house because she wanted to meet Kenny Loggins mostly. But uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, I was at the piano, kind of, kind of thinking of things I might play for him. So I was playing stuff for her, you know. I so was going, "What do you think of this?" You know, I was thinking of playing this for Kenny, and uh, she goes, "Yeah, that's great." You know, she's, you know, uh, picking up my, you know, my cl- dirty clothes on the floor and all that, you know, and, and not really paying much attention to me. And the doorbell rings, and uh, sure enough, it was Kenny. And the first thing he says to me, he goes, what were you just playing? I was playing her that riff. And I said, oh, it's just something I was thinking about playing for you. He goes, that's what I want to work on first. And wow. That was uh, the first song we wrote together. So what was the, the kind of division of labor for that record uh, in terms of he did you did music, he did lyrics? No, we both, both? we both wrote, I think, both. You know, uh, From that point on, I, we came up with the the. The, the bridge or B section and then the chorus together, you know, and uh, the rest of the words, you know, because I, I literally only had the, the little verse feeling, you know, they're just kind of the tempo yeah. of the song and the chords and the verse, you know. Again, are you, it's so intelligent. Like, were you, I know no one starts thinking like, okay, this is our bullseye moment. This is going to happen. Like, at any point, did you guys think like, maybe we should, dumb this down just slightly mm-hmm. because I mean the bridge the the post bridge yeah the, I mean it's very steely Dan is well I was gonna say in, at that time that was really the that's top 40 music was you know I mean everybody was trying to uh, harmonize in a new and a different way and bring something you know it was it was after that that it got to be where well we got to pull this back and make it more primitive and you know rock and roll and you know all that you know 80s it was like you know all these chord changes are you know that's uh, you know uh, not not hip or cool anymore but at the time that we did it it was steely dan james taylor artists like that who had very you know uh james taylor as much as he was kind of a kind of came from that singer songwriter tradition almost folk he, he his influences as a is from a jazz perspective are very evident, you know, and right. uh, in a lot of his songs. And uh, so he, you know, he brought a lot of, and that was the era too where albums, artists tried to do a lot of different styles of music on one record. Like if you listen to like the old, um, oh, you know, uh, records, you know, uh, that, uh, well, I think Ray Charles started that where you, you kind of step outside your own genre mm-hmm. and do music 
right? Isn't necessarily relate, you know, people. A little bit of country, a little bit of. Yeah, and uh, uh, where James Taylor was great at that, he would do an R and B song. Uh, he would do a song with marimbas, you know, <laughs> and he would do, the next song would be a very kind of guitar, vocal, folkish kind of thing, and beautiful lyrics, and so he he never shied away from any style of music that he thought he could be sincere, and and, and a lot of artists were like that uh, uh, during that time, and that seemed to be what had come out of the '60s was artists exploring other genres of music, other than maybe the genre they started out in, and uh, so we were just kind of doing what was kind of being done at the time you know we didn't really think of ourselves as anything too different you know so when you're sitting in the audience at uh at the shrine auditorium and 1979 was of like that was highly notable for so many so much heavy hitting going on as far as the nominations were concerned and and uh at the grammys uh you're going up. Uh, I think you don't bring bring me flowers. Uh, the gambler. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I will survive. And uh, after the love is gone. Right. What was your What was the feeling in your like when they called your name for record of the year and song of the year? You guys won off five major awards except for album, I believe. Yeah, it was it was amazing. Um... Like, did you expect it, or no? I don't think you could expect. I, you know, that was underdogish. Yeah, you just, yeah, you feel. I felt like, uh, what are the chances of, you know, the first uh, record of this nature that I had anything to do with actually winning a Grammy? But uh, uh, we were, we were fairly taken back by the whole idea that we were going to win not just a Grammy but a couple. You know. it was amazing, and I, I I remember I mean not to be uh, corny, but my grandmother was in the audience that night. She had come to the grand. She was a day. <laughs> yeah, and I remember thinking, well, I was so grateful she was still with us and that she was able to be here for this. You know, that's what's up. And uh, but uh, you know, I, I mean, it was just kind of uh, amazing. It was kind of surreal, really. You know, it was. Uh, uh, it, it wasn't until I drove home that night. I remember I, they had sent a car for me and. Uh, I, I just kind of had the guy drive up and down Pacific Coast Highway a couple times so I could kind of come down from the whole experience before I had to go home and go into my house all alone and <laughs> <laughs> and be by myself with this, you know. That's <clears throat> uh, <laughs> funny, Pacific Coast Highway. Okay, that, that, that is one of the greatest. I'm glad to know I'm not the only human being that does, doesn't ride Pacific Coast Highway just to ride it to relax. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, okay, sure. good, there's other people. So when One Step Closer comes out, why did it implode? And was there pressure to like? Lots. Yeah, I, I felt my personal pressure really that, you know, well, God, now this record, is, you know, that whole thing of it, this it next record is really be. important. You know, mm-hmm. is, I've learned that that was never true. But at the time, you know, you buy into it and you think it's like the most important thing in the world. And it's just really not all that important. But uh and whatever it is, you'll survive it, but you don't know that at the time. And I remember feeling a lot of pressure, and, and I think the band felt a lot of pressure to kind of come up with something uh, else again and something new and maybe something even different from the records we had done up to that moment, you know. Um, and, and, you know, I, th- I think at that point in time, it was maybe, it kind of marked the beginning of the end of my tenure with the Doobies, although 
I still play with the guys, and I still look forward to playing with them every chance I get. I, uh, you know, great friends with them to this day, and uh, I really think as a Doobie brother, all of us who ever had uh, any affiliation with the band, uh, it's kind of like once a Doobie brother, you're always a Doobie brother somewhere in your heart and mind, you know. So was the breakup amicable or? Like? Yeah, it was. It was. It was amicable, and we were like any other band. You know, we had our moments. You know, we threw furniture at each other. In the <laughs> yeah, that's where I want you. To, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like as the new guy, how can you? You're the new guy, but you're now the definitive voice of the group, almost. And bringing in hits. More, yeah, more definitive <laughs> yeah, than, than what the... came before. So it's like, how much power were you still the rookie that had to carry all the back the team's jock straps, or was it like? Um, Michael know, McDonald, we love you. And then, like, you know, well, what about me? I've been here since 1971. Like, what no, was that dynamic like? No, nah, it was never, uh, you know, because I think uh, internally within the band, you know, uh, I think all of us still looked at, you know, at, at that point in time, Pat was kind of the senior member, you know, and and kind of the guy everyone looked to to kind of keep the band together, you know. Uh, in fact, it was when he left the band that... Uh, we showed up for a rehearsal, and I don't. Th and we all kind of looked across the stage at each other, like, "What are we doing here?" Because without Pat, it's really just not the Doobie Brothers anymore. Pat left uh, after minute uh, by minute. It was uh, after um, the live album we did. Oh, the farewell tour. The farewell tour, yeah. And uh, it just didn't seem like there was any reason for us to go out and try to be the Doobie Brothers anymore, you know. And uh, I think it was unanimous, you know, really, you know. Uh, so even when you did. What, it takes a minute. Your your first solo record with uh, if that's what it takes. If that's what it takes. I'm sorry. <clears throat> oh, before we, I have a question. before we go there, is it true that Michael Jackson is singing backgrounds on minute by minute? Uh, no. Uh, not, okay. Was that a joke? <laughs> no, that was... I, no. He said it, and I didn't know if that was real or not. Yeah. No, you know, it actually was a joke. Uh, that it, it, the whole tape. I've heard the whole conversation. People okay. kind of edited it down to. Him just telling, I think it was Elizabeth Taylor, I think, that he was talking to. <laughs> but uh, he was just pulling her chain. And then later on, he tells her that he was kidding, you know. Oh, okay. Uh, but, okay. Uh, Actually, you know what? Speaking of which, you guys have the same publicist as the Jacksons, correct? That's right. Uh, uh, David Guest. So there's a photo of, I don't know what party it was. I don't know if it was a Doobie's Grammy party or something. But it's some sort of like after party thing. And the caption says that you guys did a uh long train running, shake your body down to the ground. Like mash up. Mash up. <laughs> Cause I see I believe on it's Michael and Randy on stage with you guys. Like Tito, yeah. Uh it was at the Jacksons and it was at the Friars Club in LA. It was a benefit show. And uh I forget what the charity was. It was a Jackson family charity, and we oh, was their thing. Okay. Yeah, and we we just kind of came as guests, and uh, and we did we did uh, uh, long train running and uh, shake your body, body down to the, the right temper. <laughs> Has uh, this uh, ever been? Does anyone have a bootleg of this or a recording? I, or? I, you know what? Ask I think I think there is one somewhere out there in the world where I wouldn't be able to tell I would you. Love but. this. Yeah, I mean, how do you, were you guys big into archiving any? Oh. Great, I'm asking you guys. Right. <laughs> Were you into collecting your shows? Like, or, no, but, but you know, people over the years would send us stuff like that. And I had, once I had a big uh, 
photo album of, of all those different photos of the us. but no one has a super eight in the studio as you're doing like open your eyes no, and none no, of that stuff no uh-uh. <sighs> damn yeah. no we just we we hadn't you know we didn't have that consciousness yet you know um but uh i think the doobies actually have a lot of uh super eight movies from early doobies years you know on the plane and, and okay. touring and stuff like that you know so with your solo career uh, how scary was that too? Probably the most scary thing I've ever done. You know, uh, uh, it was uh, for some reason, and I'm not sure why. I just uh, because there was a part of my life when I thought I'm going to go out to California, I'm going to be a recording artist, and I, I had that idea in my head. But somehow, coming full circle as a member of bands, uh, uh, and then all of a sudden being kind of I felt like I was walking the plank, you know, to be a solo artist. Again, Sink or you know? swim. Yeah. But, uh, and it, it took me a few shows to, to kind of find my comfort zone. I That first tour was pretty scary, and I had a great band, you know, uh, Edgar Winter, um, Robin Ford playing guitar. Uh, you know, it was uh, an amazing band. Willie Weeks played bass with me, and, and I couldn't have done better for, as far as the band's concerned. Uh, Brian Mann played keyboards. But uh, I just had no concept of how to act up there <laughs> as a, as a front man, you know. But it was so you were used to being the side, side front guy. man. Yeah, um, you know, I could sing a couple songs, a and night, then someone else does and all the, the work. Spotlight would shift over there. <laughs> so when, was Sweet Freedom like your first music video? Because in your face, when I watched that video, sometimes I was like, "Oh, he he really might not be comfortable in that situation." Because you know, uh, Billy and Greg were uh, jumping. Like, <laughs> did I jump? Sorry, yeah, yeah. I was just was asking. I didn't. Okay, that, that wasn't you know, the that first wasn't video. The first, the first okay. was uh, I keep forgetting that we did a music video, and it was. Uh, it was yeah awkward, you know. It was. It was his don't look any further. <laughs> yeah, that was not. That was not my forte. It uh, was his video. don't look any further. Yeah, yeah. On uh, you, you came on Soul Train to promote it, and probably the best thing about it was the heavyweights you had with you. I mean, you had Lewis remember. Johnson, and but that's Lewis actually. Lewis playing, Johnson he's, playing he's bass on the record yeah. too, yeah, and and Jeff Picaro and, uh, and Greg Filling Gaines. Greg Filling, like you had the, the the cats with you, but yeah, I mean, we're worshiping like you had the gods with you, but back then it was just like, uh, who do we get? Uh, let's get a. Well, you, you know, I was lucky to be able to best. get those guys for sure, and it was my two sisters singing backgrounds. So, yeah, yeah, but. Uh, uh, yeah, I, uh, I, I would, I would say that on a good day you could get those guys to come and play on TV with you. But uh, you know, that, it just so happened that everybody was available, and uh, so uh, um. that song in particular, it was. Um, I was reading it started off as a Lieber and Stoller. It was. Song. It, it, how, it, it, how, it, how wait, it you're kind of jumping the gun because we're about to play a round of. Did you guess? So, Mike McDonald. Uh, I need you to tell me what are your thoughts of hearing the song. <laughs> I already know what it is. It. <laughs> what are your thoughts? Chuck Jackson. That you don't love me. Oh. I keep forgetting that you don't want me no more. Mm. I keep forgetting that you told me that you 
so I found this 45 in Japan like 15 years ago, but it came out in 1974. What? How? Well, it's it's an interesting story. Um, and who was that? That's, okay, that was uh, Long John uh, Baldry, who oh, worked okay. with Chuck uh, Jackson. Chuck Jackson did the original, yeah. Yeah. Um, it was a Lieber Stoller song, uh, I, and, and believe it or not, unbeknownst to me at the time, uh, I was my uh, uh, it was one of those things where we were kind of playing. My writing partner said, "You know, there's this uh, because uh, he had somehow you know mentioned the song or something, and and I was kind of just playing the piano riffing. He goes, "What's that?" And I go, "Well, that's what you were just saying." And he goes. No, no, no. He goes, that's totally different. <laughs> and uh, so we, we wrote this song, uh-huh. you know. I was immediately reminded by other people that, you know, that you know, that's closer than you think, you know. Right. So, uh, you know, we got in contact with Mike Stoller and, and Jerry Lieber, and, and we realized that we had infringed on their copyright, you know. Uh, and they were gracious enough to give us some credit for the, this version of the it's song. It's kind of weird that you technically wrote a song with the, the guys that, like, you. that's a real building yeah. classic. Oh, like. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I was not, I, you know, I mean, I, I don't mean to say this, like, because, I, you know, I, I knew better. I should, the minute I heard this guy say, oh, no, that's not, I, I realized, you know, I better listen to that song before <laughs> I make any, you know. But I, I didn't, you know, and I just, uh, you know, we, we recorded it, uh, our version of it anyway, and, uh, and, Right away, uh, one of the guys at Warner Brothers, one of the producers, Warner said, "You know, he gave me this tape. He goes, listen to this, you know." And I said, "Oh, well, you know, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> for you at least, <laughs> yeah." Well, I I realized that we we needed to you know get their permission and you know and and they, they like I say they were nice enough to give us their permission to release it and put it out and uh, but uh, you know and and uh, credit where credits due you know that 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 song ours would not have existed but for their original song you know so let's jump wait who's credited (laughs) who's credited uh officially for the writing of that song sorry who's officially credited for the writing of that song? it's uh mike stoller jerry lieber myself and ed sanford for for our version of it yeah yeah uh the original version was a lieber stoller song so 12 years later the song comes back to haunt you uh, <laughs> yeah, the warm. most mm. yeah. The, the most gangster rap narrative of all time. <laughs> but using this as a, a, a backdrop with with Warren G's uh, G Funk, uh, what were your initial feelings? Or you know, um, were the checks not were the checks nice? But you know, did you have were you hesitant to clear it and no, I, you know, but back then, what I what I remember was uh, typically somebody would give you, you know, ten grand, and it was theirs. You know, I mean, it wasn't right. like the deals that are made today, where no we get publishing. Yeah, you know, like now it's it's a, yikes! It was a one off. Yeah, yeah, it was just like you know, uh, well, you know, we we want to sample this. What'll it cost? <laughs> Wait, us? that oh, wasn't God. a one off though. Uh-huh. Wait, that wasn't a one off though, right? Not that song, yes. not Warren G song. That it wasn't was a one off. Yeah. Yeah, but oh, the, damn, I was going to ching you, <laughs> but instead, no. Yeah, well, it's it's the version my kids like, you know. So, uh, <laughs> you know and, uh, but, but yeah, but then the, it it expressed 
I'm sure there was renewed interest in hearing it live all of a sudden. Um, yeah, you know, it's was funny. Was it baffling um, to you? Or? Yeah, it was. It, it had a, a certain impact on, on the, you know, our record. It, uh, so many people think that's the version of the song that, you know, as it exists. <laughs> you know, my, like, oh, uh, is it? Yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm not even sure my own kids didn't think that, you know, because they hadn't really heard my version. They were, weren't <laughs> even born yet, you know, so, uh, yeah. Have you have you ever performed it with Warren G once and someone comes no, with the idea? No, no. <laughs> uh, wait, what? Has he asked? Yeah, no, I never did. Okay. God, that has to happen. Yeah. The Tonight Show, Warren G, Michael McDonald. Oh, Especially for Nate Dogg. I'm going to make it. Oh, damn. And he has to here. sing Nate Dogg's fuck. Yeah, yeah, he has to. Yeah. <laughs> you think, you think you could hit that, Michael? You, you heard that, you know, the Nate Dogg part? You think you could hit I thought just saw those guys on some TV show or a documentary of some kind. It was like, uh, wow, man, what it was. Was okay, that the I, first time a, a hip hop artist asked you for the rights or the um, sample? I believe it was, and we've had quite a few things sampled since then. Minute by minute was sampled. Uh, Yikes, that was hard. <laughs> right, it's not straightforward. Wait. Oh God! The intro to minute by that, minute it, it throws me <laughs> yeah. off every time. Yo, I'm tired. Oh, it's much simpler than it sounds. I know, but like every time I hear it, I'm still like, wait a minute, wait. wait Where's this the one? Is this one? Is this one? Is this one? It hit you, my dude. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, you, there is no regrets of it at all. No, no, uh, uh, you know, like all things, uh, it, it uh, well, it's kind of like the Rolling Stones with. Used to love her. It's all over now. You know. It, you know. It, Amer- you know. At first, they were going, "Oh, you know, we got. We just have our first nut- top ten record, and these guys scoop us." You know, and uh, and then he said, "But then when the checks started rolling in, I wasn't didn't feel so bad about you it. You weren't mad anymore." Yeah. How did you uh, get into working with um, for Carly Simon for like "You Belong to Me"? Carly, I uh, played on some. We played the Doobies. Actually, played some tracks on on a, her, the album before that. Okay. We we. we uh, she used us uh, to play on, um, oh gosh, uh, a song that uh, she had recorded, and I can't remember what it was now, but uh, we played, we were the rhythm section, and uh, it was, and upon meeting her during those sessions, um, Ted said, you know, you guys should write together, and so the first chance I got, I, I had a little thing on cassette you know, which was uh, "You Belong to Me" and uh, chord progression, and I sent her the cassette. Um, and she wrote a lyric and sent the lyric back, written out on paper, which I wish I still had. You know, wow. and uh, and uh, she, I had given her enough melody, just kind of mumbling, you know, uh, on the tape that she kind of wrote to that me- melody and that cadence and. Uh, uh, we never spoke the entire time we wrote the song together. And, what? Uh, it wasn't until like five years later, she had a number one hit with it, <laughs> or you know, a top five record with it. And I wasn't your version first though. On the our version, version was first, but okay. it was never a single for us. But it was kind of a popular album cut. But right. Uh, so about five years later, she had a hit with it, and uh, I thought, well, you know, geez, I should call her and say congratulations <laughs> or something, you know. And I saw, so I, I called her on the phone. And, we kind of laughed about the fact that we hadn't spoken about this for the last so many years. You cut your backgrounds on it away from her? Like, uh, I, I didn't sing on that record. Oh, you're not on, on her. On so yeah, version. Yeah, no, oh, okay. uh, just the Doobies record is okay. uh, the one I, I sang and, and did the backgrounds on. And, and so I forget, she she did that record in New York. 
That's you singing backgrounds on uh, Ride Like the Wind with Christopher. Yeah, that's yeah, you. Christopher Cross. Yeah. How did that come about? I love that record. Uh, actually, it was like we like a day like today, we'd be sitting in the studio uh, and uh, Doobies, you know, in Studio A at uh, Amigo, and uh, Christopher Cross was his first album was being cut in the studio next door, and uh, the producer was Michael Amarty, and, and he came oh. over and said. Uh, Hey, would you if you get a minute after after you guys are done, would you come over and sing a background part for me? And I said, sure, you know, and uh, just kind of went over and. Uh, How did you feel about the SCTV sketch? <laughs> Which great. I'm happy to say, we we recreated that sketch on the Tonight Show, where we literally had him run into the studio, making it to the keyboard just oh, in yeah, time yeah, to yeah, sing. Yeah, right. Just a moment. <laughs> Just like the SCTV sketch. What's SCTV? Uh, Second City. Second yeah, City. Second City oh. TV. Sketch comedy. Okay. Yeah, kind of the SNL of, was it? Can't, uh, yeah, Chicago. yeah. Yeah, Chicago. yeah. It was like And the bit was based on the fact that uh, every time his part comes up, such a long way to go, that he would literally like do plane trains in an automobile, like on a plane, on a train, running at the speed of sound. Come to a long to get, way to go. Uh, just to literally get to the microphone in time for such a long way to go. And then run away and then, you know, do it every time. But we, when we had Christopher Cross on the show, we didn't announce to the audience that Michael McDonald was there. We just had an empty keyboard. Oh, wow. What? And as soon as no, Christopher Keith was playing, wasn't he? Huh? Wasn't Keith playing it? At first, oh, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> you're right. Keep McPhee. Shout out to Keep McPhee. Yeah. And so, right when the bridge came in, Michael McDonald just ran in, bumped Keith off, and such a long way to go. I'm yeah. stuck that y'all have Michael McDonald and Christopher Cross. Like, I got a YouTube. That's you know, the funny crazy. thing about that, that SCTV bit for me was uh, I had just left uh, a friend of mine's room, uh, one of the other band members. And we were on the road, and um, we had just smoked this joint, and it, I was really, you know, stoned, you know, more than usual kind of thing. And I, <laughs> I remember sitting there thinking, I got to go lay down, you know, and I was just kind of felt like whatever this stuff was, it was, you know, ungodly. And uh, got any so of it I, right now? But <laughs> no, I don't. I, not for years, but uh, Read my back, mind, this Steve. was back in the day. But anyway, I left and I kind of got my key in my door and I'm thinking, man, I, I'm not really with it. And as I walked in, I always used to leave my TV on and that skit was in progress <laughs> on the TV. And I'm, I walked in, I'm going, oh, I know that guy. How meta is that? <laughs> how meta is As that? Super meta. And, and for, it took me a second, I thought, I, I think I'm really having a psychotic uh, breakdown <laughs> here. <laughs> okay, so I feel silly because as much traveling as I do and as many Airbnbs that I stay in because that's the only way I travel, I really have never considered my own space. I mean, think about it. What if you can make money for your next vacation while you're on vacation? And I know what you're thinking. You're like, my house is just not fancy enough. I just can't do the things. You're sleeping on your space. I'm sleeping on my space. Yes, I'm talking to myself. And I really don't even have to use my whole place. I could just Airbnb a room. I know how this works. Because again, I use Airbnb. Duh. I mean, just think about it. Most of us that use Airbnb are only using it for 50% of its power. We're spending the money, but we're not making the money. What if we could do both? Whoa! Mind-blowing. And your home really might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
Hey guys, Rob Parker here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer. Making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new Toyota truck like the rugged half-ton Tundra. Workhorse by nature, powerhouse by design, the Tundra combines raw capability with premium comfort and advanced tech to fuel your wildest adventures. And with the available iForce Max hybrid powertrain, you can take electrifying horsepower further than ever before or check out the fully redesigned Tacoma delivering trail dominating power and captivating style the new Tacoma was born to make your off-roading dreams come true and with the new available tech this legendary truck is getting even better and when you buy a Toyota truck you buy Toyota dependability meaning your truck will hold its value long into the future so visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com Toyota, let's go places Hi, it's Sugar Steve from Questlove Supreme. If debit is your go-to card, Discover thinks it's time you get rewarded too. So check out Discover Cashback Debit a game-changing checking account with cashback on everyday debit card purchases. That's right, cashback isn't just for credit cards anymore. Whether it's a movie date, flea market find or midday latte, you can start earning cashback. And did I mention there are no fees, period? Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashbackdebit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. Wait, how nerdy are we to not even mention weed at all to a doobie brother? In, <laughs> to a doobie brother. In this 90-minute interview. I didn't want to, and I, I think Steve was scared because it was just obvious. I was, I was going to because you talk about it. Well, I read a, uh, the number one growing industry in the United States, <laughs> I guess. Yeah, I was reading about your new record, uh, which I really like. I was checking it on the uh, way over here. and oh, I was, I mean, I listened to it one time, and I was like, okay, I mean, it sounds like Mike McDonald. Then I read an interview you were talking about how a lot of the songs are kind of about your sobriety. Yeah. And that just made me hear it in a different way. Uh, how long have you been sober? Uh, it's been 31 years. Wow. Yeah. And uh, it was a good idea for me, <laughs> of all the people I know. And that's sober uh, from from all? Yeah, all, everything. Okay. Yeah, I, I, uh, no drinking, no, no smoking, no nothing. No nothing. Yeah. Wow. I, uh, a sober doobie brother. I... Uh, <laughs> I needed to do that, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it, and it's you know it's the best thing I ever decision I ever made. You know, I mean, obviously, it's uh, I don't think I would be here to be quite honest. That became increasingly more obvious to me as time went on, and I realized that I didn't have that much further to, to go down that road. You know, and uh, did that. So uh, there were low good. points. Oh yeah, 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 uh, a good swath of low point. You know, uh, but oh. you know. Uh, I'm one of the lucky ones, you know. That's that's the the, the moral of that story. She's here to talk there's, about it. Yeah, and there's not, you know, the the odds, uh, you know, with sobriety uh, apparently aren't that good. But it's it's, uh, you know, there is a solution out there for people who need it, and uh, and God willing, you know, you find that, you know, because for me, uh, the alternative would have been the bad alternative, you know. Yeah. You know? What was your solution? How were you able to stay sober for so long? Uh, just one day at a time, you know. I just uh, uh, really uh, uh, surrendering to the truth of it, you know. I, I think uh, the, the big, the great obsession for, for most people who are addicted is that I, I got this. I can handle it. I, I, can, I can fix this, you know. I can, you know. And it's uh, unfortunately 
uh, for most of us who suffer from addiction, there's not enough willpower in the universe that we could muster to, 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 to fix it once we're there, you know. And so uh, there, are, uh, there are solutions uh, that, that come in the form of uh, a community of people who are, who, you know, are suffering from the same disease. And, that, uh, and that's, you know, I can't really, you know, uh, speak beyond that because I'm not an authority on it, you know, but I can say that, that that's what I would suggest to anyone is to find, uh, find people in sobriety that can... Uh, share their experience, strength, and hope with you, you know. Have you found that being sober, has it uh, helped you preserve your voice? Because you sound oh, great on this yeah. No, I, I, that's, that's, you know, that would have probably died first, but I would have been shortly thereafter, you know. <laughs> um, no, it's, uh, you know, most everything worthwhile in my life today is a direct result of sobriety for me, um, Probably none of it is anything I would have put on that list if you had given it to me, saying, "Well, if you were able to, you know, stop using, um, what would what would you be hoping for?" You know, mm-hmm. I, I, uh, most of what is most important to me today are things I would have never even thought of. You know, uh, just uh, the simple things, the simple uh, aspects of my life that just wouldn't have existed. Uh, you know, uh, I would have never got to that. You know, part. Okay. You, we're going to wind up the show, but there's still like I don't, yeah, we got to talk forty year old version. Forty year, yeah, there's there's forty year old version, five sixties. <laughs> well, you worked with the great Rod Temperton. Yes. Oh yes, yes. sweet for you. What was that like? Like, he's one of the he's one of my of music. Yeah, yeah, one of the best R and B writers that I know. You know, uh, Heat Wave was one mm-hmm. of the best groups you know uh, that i i can think of uh, with a book of songs that i you know sometimes when you you play with a band and then you realize just how many songs they actually had yeah. that's happened to me many times you know we we played with uh, awb we played with the heat wave a couple of gigs and it's like song after song and you go oh my god i, I forgot in steely dan also you know when i or the doobies i i almost forget how many uh, how deep their their song book is you know uh, and Heatwave was like that. That was one of those groups where there were so many songs. Uh, they were a British group, you know, yeah. with these classic R&B songs, you know, that I thought were just American records. Right. Know? I had no idea they were uh, records made in London, you know. British can do Americans better than Americans. Yeah, can, you know. Yeah. And um, Rod was a great writer, a great producer, you know. Speak, speaking of you not being in the room at the same time, uh, I heard... You also say that when you did On My Own no, with Patti LaBelle. No, y'all had to be in the same room. No. no that you guys were in. No, no, no. She was you, talking you to You didn't even meet during. No, I hadn't even met yet. I, even I the sang, video. I sang to her voice. No, I hadn't, I hadn't no, met her yet. You know? No. Wow. I met her. The, we, the Tonight we, Show, right? We performed that song for the first time the day after we met on The Tonight Show. Yeah. And, uh, wow. What about Ever Changing Time? Ever change times? Uh, Aretha was not there when I, I sang to her voice. Oh. It was Bert and Carol, the producer. Oh. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Oh. But I think Mike got a boo. He the original yeah. phone exchange. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I did. Uh, I did perform it with her though at the Grammys. Mm. Yeah. I love that song. Are any of you motherfuckers going to talk about Yamo be there? We will. <laughs> we will. I was about to ask him what it was like performing with Aretha, but okay. just, all right, fine. Yeah, I got to actually do the video with her. Yes. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. And uh, talk about that the both of the videos, the Patty and the Aretha. Yeah, he, he yeah. wasn't in the room with her there. You, 
did oh, do you the video the together. I did, I did uh, shoot the video with Aretha in Detroit. But not with Patty. Patty. Not with Patty. She was doing a play in New York. Uh, you're on too short the Box with God. Box right? with they God couldn't play, do the video yeah. together. The song was called On My Own. Right. <laughs> 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 All right, so, yeah, y'all will be there. The, the, the battle of the... Yeah, uh, the battle the, 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 the battle of the tennis. <laughs> <laughs> well, wait, I'm actually more I'm more impressed that you name drop uh, James's brother Philip than anything because he's one of my favorite singers. Oh, from Switch, singer. yeah, from Switch, yeah, yeah. yeah but with the, with the process, he had the big, the yeah, big he process. the feather, he, yeah, he was in there. But like, did Rod also do that as well, or? Yamo, yeah, Rod. Uh, Rod was one of the writers on on Yamo Be There. That made a that song made a a, a big impression on my Christian household. <laughs> that was, uh, yeah, it, it, it made a very big impression, especially you know the division of secular and you know the local radio station in Philly WZZD used to play that a lot. They would play Yamo Be There. Yes, okay. they would. Was it your intention to make a gospel song, or pretty much? I mean, yeah. Uh, and um, we—it's uh, funny because uh, uh, that was probably the third song we wrote that Quincy kept, you know, going. Yeah, go back to the rejection. You guys, you guys need to go back and what? write something better, you know. And uh, so we we kept trying, you know. And uh, James and I spent a lot of time in my studio, just kind of writing at the. Did you fully concert. flesh out the other two songs that didn't make it? Uh, we made demos on on them. Um, Did they wind the, up being anything? No, no. Uh, I was gonna say, was it Party Animal? No, no. Uh, <laughs> same thing. No, no. <laughs> it was uh, it was one song. Uh, I can't remember the title. It was like Better Man and. Uh, Actually, was kind of we liked it. We thought it was. We thought this is gonna. Quincy's gonna love this, and it was like, eh, you know. But uh, <laughs> damn. But Yamo was uh, the song that he mentioned. He that caught his ear, you know. And uh, um, we were just, you know, uh, like I said, spent countless hours just sitting there. We had a good time, you know, writing because uh, he and I. It was always a good hang, you know, uh, with James. You know, um, for those of us. Not familiar with what the hell Yamo be there means. Explain it. No, no, I'm asking. Okay. <laughs> but it was your question. Yeah. Yeah. It, well, Yamo yeah, be there uh, is kind of in reference to God will be there. You know, uh, it's like uh, that. That's the answer. You know. Uh, uh, and, so uh, Yahweh is that Yahweh? Yahweh. Yeah. Yeah. Why Yeah. Yah. Wow. Yahweh. This is enlightening. I feel like Mo is one of those so, Michael McDonald words. Mo, because. <laughs> Is this easy to? What do you, think, okay, do you get tired of people imitating you in front of your face? Um, <laughs> has it gone to I think that was the first. That you was know, the original uh, have you ever met Anita Baker? Like, has she? Yeah, sure, sure. And Patty it, Austin too. Yeah. Expressed yeah. Wow. their their, their wow. fandom for you. But yeah, no, you know, it's. Uh, I feel like Ed Sullivan. You know, everybody's really big shoe. But do they do it at inconvenient moments, like when you're like trying to sleep in the on the airplane and? Yeah, I just Things like that, or, or some some guy will stagger out of a bar and grab me on the street and start, you know, <laughs> and start singing the songs to you. You don't know me, but I'm your brother. We, we did that once to Babyface, and I was highly hey, man. irritated. It had to go down. No, <laughs> seriously, I have a no for real. I have a band. I have a band called the Foreign Exchange, and we're seriously considering doing a night 
where we perform our songs in your voice and call, yes, our, yes. And call ourselves the Four McDonald's. Yes. Oh my God. Yo, yes. I'm here for that. Oh. I'm here for that. And like all of us come out with beards. Like we all, even the girls, like we all go out with beards. I'm for that. Oh, I am too. It's scary, but I'm for it. Yo, Michael, was there a moment when you realized, because I know we always talk about like blue eyed soul and whatnot, but was there a moment when you realized like, I'm in an elite type club of I can go here, there, do the air and everywhere when it comes to, you know, soul music and pop music and whatever else you chose to do. But at least, you know, like, you know, it's, it's very few singers that have like the black community the in their pocket. Yeah. You're in, like, oh, we want nice to steal you away. That. We'll take you in the trade. You know, I, I, it's... um. You know, for me, it, 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 to me, it's it's that that Ameri- that truly American uh, music, you know, uh, and uh, I don't know that there really is any other besides jazz, you know, any other really truly American music. You know, it, it's funny how so much of our culture is uh, uh, for the the problems that this country seems to uh, suffer from in, in terms of racial tensions and. Uh, it, it always reminds me of the conversations my wife and I have when she says, you know, we haven't talked in months and, you know, I'm worried about us, you know. Mm. And I say something brilliant like, well, you know, you know I have to go cut the grass right now, so why are you bringing this up? You, know, you think I want to go cut the grass, you know? You think I feel like cutting grass, you know? And it's like that's how we talk to each other in this society, you know, rather than because we don't, it's uncomfortable and we don't want to talk about it, you know. Uh, when really that would solve everything, you know, uh, if we really truly just talked about it, you know. Uh, but there are a few that can lead a conversation like you can because, like I said, you are loved by everybody. everybody. Well, uh, you know, uh, thank you. I, that's very sweet of you to say. I, You know, you'd have to talk to my wife on that one. Well, I'm yeah. sure that's true. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, it's um, – for me, uh, I, I, I've often thought, that, you know, uh, how much of our culture are from in food and fashion – Certainly, music and any real form of art uh, in this country is, is largely African American influenced. You know that is uh, well one of the biggest influences on American culture there is. You know uh, more than anything. You know if you think of French food, you th- you categorize it automatically as French food or Italian food. You know when you think of uh, what is largely African American influenced food, it's American. Barbecue, it's you know, it's, uh, it's you funny. know they uh, just forget the root. You're right, right exactly. You're right. You know, I mean, it's it, we accept it as mm-hmm. it, totally as American. You know, mm-hmm. uh, hopefully in our lifetime we will see a, a, a country where we understand who we are you know, hmm. and we go forward. As, that is as Michael, deep. McDonald, Mr. McDonald. Oh, Reverend Michael McDonald. That was <laughs> so simple, so deep. All right, deep. what was your forty-year-old version? Then we gotta stop the episode. Yeah, I know. Oh no, um, just how was that? Because they were like making fun of you in the movie, but yeah. it was. I mean, it was funny, but did that kind of you were heavily yeah, that part brought of that you movie. back? Yeah, that, that kind no, of, no, it was it was great fun. My friend actually worked on that film. Is he was the music guy on that film, and he would send me. Uh, like dailies or whatever scripts, you okay. know, and rewrites, and he go, "Is this okay?" <laughs> wow. And some of the stuff they they didn't put in it, it was hilarious, but <laughs> brutal, but hilarious, you know. And uh, and so in the end, it was really like the the nicer version of of, oh, wow. of all of it. But it, it was I thought it was hilarious, you know. And of course, you know, again, my kids always enjoyed that, you know. They, they, 
they enjoyed rubbing my nose and anything like that. You know, the Family Guy, whatever. You know. Okay, uh, this is right, this is my last question. I know you go. Okay, what were your thoughts on Michael Bolton? Because I thought he was kind of trying Ooh. to. I thought he was kind of trying to steal your swag fight. a little bit. Shots no, fight. no, I love Michael Bolton. Whatever, but it's only one Mike. Yeah, we he only, gets the love only, from us. That he nah, get it's that only love one Mike. Mike we recognize. Mm-hmm. All uh, I need is well, one Mike. Uh, one uh, Mike. Uh, I, I, <laughs> So what were your thoughts? Because Baldwin does want to do the show. Yo, I That's think cool. he should do it. I would love to have him on. But I, I think he's great. I mean, Kenny the G. First, you never uh, sued the Isley Brothers. Okay. <laughs> yeah, the first time I, I did a gig with Michael Bolton was a local thing in Santa Barbara, and Kenny was Kenny's charity that we would all do. And uh, Kenny Loggins said to me, he "Goes this cat is serious. You know, wow. I mean, you know he is a, he is a, a he sings like we wish we could sing. You what? Know? Wow." You know, and, uh, <laughs> And, and I Mike's from the school of Ray, but who? I don't who know. are you? No, I mean he's he's he's, he's channeling. Singer, he's yeah. trying to channel Ray. Who is there? Anyone that you're trying to channel? Like the closest I can think of is maybe Sarah Vaughan. Like who? Uh you know, because I, I, you do I, have an original voice that I can't trace the genesis to. It, to. Yeah, right, right. Well, thanks. I, you know, I for me, really, it's just. Um, I try to do the best with what I got. You know what I mean? That's that's really what it comes down to. I, I uh, I've always I've never really uh, had the confidence as a singer per se, as far as chops and you know technique. You it's know, so what? Odd to hear you say that? Like, <laughs> you know, but, like, but, but, like, come on, Michael well, McDonald. Hey, uh, you know, All right, let's I mean, get to the Thundercat question. Yeah, that's <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I, I mean, seriously, I, I. I uh, and as I get older, especially, I, I think, you know, you, you got to kind of follow your voice with the years. You know, you, you kind of, you know, what, what's, the, what's my strength at this point, you know, and, and you kind of, uh, kind of go with that. I, I, uh, but all those singers that you mentioned are all part of my psyche, you know, uh, growing up. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I, I think when the Motown record was presented to me, my first thought was, why are they asking me to do this, you know? They but, came to you to do the covers, yeah, not uh, the other way. Okay. But uh, I, I remember the next thought was, "You better say yes, because you'll be sorry." And and secondly, I thought, you know, I have sung these songs in bars for so many years, <laughs> doing my best to emulate Marvin Gaye or uh, David Ruffin or whoever, trying to kind of you know uh, grab the spirit of their vocal, you know, because that was the whole thing about being a bar band. If you could sound like the record, yeah, you know. So growing up doing that, I thought I, I should be able to kind of p- bring something to this project that uh, just reliving my own experiences of first learning those songs and, and learning to sing them when I was you know much younger. You know. Oh man! Before we uh, before Thundercat, I Grizzly forget. Bear, Grizzly Bear. Yeah. Right. Why you wait for the others? Well, you've done yeah. yeah you've done man, a lot with. I love that record. I went to hear those guys play here in Manhattan, and it was amazing. You know, they were a really interesting band. You know, had an incredible following. You know, uh, uh, and uh, it was I, I had already done the record with them, and I really wasn't that aware of their overall variety. Yeah. You know, but the, seeing them live, I was really impressed. What know? made you do the record, being that you weren't that familiar with them? Um, like, what makes Michael McDonald say yes you know, to a record? It, the, the song had, they had approached me through management, and uh, when they played the song for me, I just thought it, it just appealed to me that it, it had a you know um, a musicality about it that I, I wanted to be a part of, you know, and uh, I wanted to kind of lend myself to if if possible. And it, the fact that it was singing backgrounds. Um, 
where I might have shied away from it as a piano player or something, you know, figuring, well, I wouldn't know what to play or whatever. But uh, as a vocalist, they had probably, they had pretty much spelled out what they wanted me to do. And so I, I, I was as kind of curious as they were about how I would sound on it, you know. And, and, uh, <laughs> like, so were you thrown off with, with Thundercats call? Because no, that was one pairing that nobody saw coming. Yeah, no, uh, uh, that was Kenny. I have to give Kenny credit on that because uh, he, both he and my kids were huge fans of, of Steve's, you know, and uh-huh. uh, they they love Thundercat. And uh, when he did that interview and he mentioned Kenny and I, Kenny's son called him and said, you know, Dad, you know, Thundercat mentioned you in an interview as an influence. And... Kenny got right on that and, you know, contacted... So uh, as long as an artist has an animal name and sounds cool... <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. You don't know nothing but Here's like, the marathon to cats. They're, well, you know, they're uh, the next thing. Well, my daughter is my great source of what's going on today. She plays me. You know, we take car trips and, you know, she went to Coachella with me when I played with Thundercat there. And, and it was a whole weekend of listening to music with her, which I love. I really enjoy, you know. You made her life, I'm sure. Oh, she kept me up late, too. That we were there till the wee hours and, you know. Both you and Kenny's kids in bands? I'm sorry. Both what? you and Kenny's kids in bands? Uh, well, the, his son was a singer. My son's in a, got in a band. and My daughter doesn't do it. She's, uh, she, she, but she's got a beautiful voice, but she doesn't want to sing professionally, you know. Hmm. But, uh, but she loves music. She's a big music fan. And, uh, yeah, you told me that because I thought that we were just going to have to explain who we were. Like, okay, so we're a band from Philly and da da da. And you're like, yeah, I know you guys. And oh, yeah, I know. We were thrown off. But <laughs> with, through her, I, I've, I've uh, actually become more increasingly aware of what's going on around me. But, well, that's uh, awesome. Yeah. Uh, I. Steve yeah, okay, Mandel. Yeah. Okay, so Yah will be there. I, I, the will be there. I, I, I get it. I got the Yah. I got the Yah part. This I got is the it. Be there part. What's who is Mo? Mo Austin. Mo Austin. Mo Austin. The Warner Brothers. That's the perfect ending of the show. Michael McDonald. We thank you for coming on Question. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. This is dream come true. Dream come true. Thank you, man. For real. Uh, shout out to my sister Dawn for putting me on to Michael McDonald. She would kill me if I didn't mention that fact to the world. That that's how I discovered you. Anyway, on behalf of uh, Boss Bill, Unpaid Bill, Fontigolo, Sugar Steve, and it's Laia and the great Michael McDonald. This is Questlove signing off. See you next week. Thank you. Questlove Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. This classic episode was produced by the team at Pandora. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Infinity Presents, a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Hi, it's Sugar Steve from Questlove Supreme. If debit is your go-to card, Discover thinks it's time you get rewarded too. So, check out Discover Cashback Debit a game-changing checking account with cash back on everyday debit card purchases. That's right, cash back isn't just for credit cards anymore. Whether it's a movie date, flea market find, or midday latte, you can start earning cash back. 
And did I mention there are no fees, period? Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashbackdebit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. Hey, hey, it's Malcolm Gladwell, host of Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Your elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.